Actually, this is a, a double encouragement for our study of the Bible. Uh, number one, an encouragement to memorize. What a great way to learn the Word of God. Huh? And I don't know if you noticed, but uh, the second time you noticed things you didn't the first. Did you catch that? That's really it's the easiest way to study the Bible. Uh, if you're not sure what to do with a passage and you're having trouble with it, read it. And then read it again. And then read it again. And you'll be amazed at what God will begin to show you as you simply repeat the passage. Okay, well, I'm challenged and I'm sure everybody here is from that. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 8. We'll continue in our study through the gospel of Luke. We are up to uh, the woman with the flow of blood and uh, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. It's a kind of a double interweaved episode, wonderful little gem from the Word of God. We'll begin reading in verse 40 of Luke chapter 8. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitude thronged him. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately... Her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Now, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling And falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand and called, saying, little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Okay. Two little episodes interwoven, and we're going to see there's a connection here between the two. 
You know, nowadays, um, there are experts who conduct what are sometimes called life seminars. You ever heard of them? Life seminars. You can go and pay thousands of dollars to um, improve your self-image, uh, find your real potential, learn to resolve conflicts with others, be a success in life, whatever your measure of success is, and so on. And, and there's always one or more experts at these seminars to uh, teach you in the ways of having a, a successful life. The problem is, there's nothing about God. Uh, in fact, one of the uh, offshoots of improving people's lifestyles is a, a field called ergonomics. Anybody heard of ergonomics? Yeah, we've got it out at my workplace. Um, it's, I looked it up. Actually, what it is, it's uh, improving the interface between a user and um, the instruments and technology and the workplace around him or her. So out where I work, for example, a specialist, an expert will come into your office and teach you uh, how to sit, uh, how to hold your shoulders, your legs, your arms, where to put the keyboard, how far to put the uh, screen of your computer away from you, and so on, in order to prevent physical damage to your body. Um, by the way, the word ergonomics comes from the Greek for work, in case you're wondering. Uh, when I first studied physics, we learned a bunch of uh, terms to describe things that we thought we knew, like work. Erg means work. So if somebody goes out in the garage and starts uh, uh, building a shelf, they're cranking out a few ergs. <laughs> well, this morning we're going to talk about a new subject, and we're going to call it lifeonomics. Because we have access to an expert, and uh, it costs you nothing. And he's an expert not just on interfacing with computers or self-image, He's an expert on life, beginning with our relationship with God. And, of course, his name is Jesus. And we're going to see him at work here, working in these two lives to uh, basically help them in their relationship with God and their relationship with people. It's a free seminar he's going to give them. And nobody knows better than him. Okay, let's begin in verse 40. It says that Jesus returned from somewhere. Well, you remember last week we saw uh, the man called Legion. And uh, Jesus restored him. He's, he was seated in his right mind when we left him. We can imagine now, by the way, the next day as Jesus has returned to the city of Capernaum, which is where he is now that this man, who is called Legion, is going throughout the country of the Gadarenes now, telling what great things the Lord has done for him. And what a scene that would be. That would, that would make a wonderful story in and of itself, wouldn't it? Uh, imagine him clothed. I don't know if he's shaved, but certainly his beard is trimmed. He'd have to have a beard to be a true disciple, you know. <laughs> Um, going, 
Sorry, ladies. <laughs> Going to his friends and, and neighbors. You know, it would, it would probably begin something like, uh, do, you, do you know me? And people would go, I've never seen you in my life. Right? You know, he says, look at me a little more closely. My life has changed. And boy, what an opening, huh? So that's going on concurrently as Jesus now comes back across the lake to Capernaum. And not surprisingly, because of all the works he's been doing in this city, the multitude is waiting for him. That's going to become a problem here in a minute, as you're going to see, the multitude. And there's this fellow named Jairus. He's a ruler in the synagogue, very important man. And uh, it's really a pathetic scene here. Uh, he literally falls down at the feet of Jesus and it says he begs him. And you can understand why his daughter is at home dying. Now, <clears throat> it's wonderful uh, to study the Bible from many angles. And one of the ways to study the Bible is to uh, look at the life of Jesus in succession and maybe even make a map of his travels. We're not going to do that this morning, but I'm going to show you how it would help in understanding exactly what's going on in this story. We often read about this and we think about this guy who kind of comes and, you know, he's heard of Jesus and uh, he's in a desperate situation. But we really don't uh, realize usually that this man would know Jesus very well. Capernaum has been the base of Jesus' operations for about a year at this point. So let me just show you. This is very important because it'll give you a better understanding of where Jairus is coming from. Look at uh, with me at uh, John chapter 4. One right turn there to the next book in the Bible. John 4, verse 46. This is very early now in Jesus' ministry. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. Remember at the wedding feast. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at, notice, Capernaum, where Jesus is right now in our story. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Does this sound familiar? Now, watch what happens. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. And not surprisingly, as we read on, his son was healed at that moment. But I want you to notice this happened in Capernaum. Now, one of the first ones to find out about this would have been, yeah, the guys in the synagogue. You better believe it. So Jairus would be one of the first ones to know that already, this is very early in Jesus, the first year of his ministry, early in it, Jesus healed at a distance a child who was on the verge of dying. You got it? Okay, at least a year probably before this. Now, uh, look at Luke, turn back to Luke chapter 4. 
This is into the early into the second year of Jesus' ministry. Luke 4, 16. And it's interesting, he goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, where he grew up with Joseph and Mary. Verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And of course, he reads the section from Isaiah. But uh, looking at verse 23, I want you to notice what he says. He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. In other words, we, we know from this, Jesus had been doing a lot of miracles in Capernaum. Jairus knows this. He's seen many of them. Jesus would have been teaching in his synagogue many, many times. Okay? By now, Jesus is not a stranger to Jairus at all. Jairus knows... Uh, who he is and what he can do. Um, okay, then uh, look over at verse 31 here. <clears throat> you remember what happened. His old neighbors from Nazareth took him to the edge of a cliff and they were going to throw him over. So uh, this is the end of Nazareth as far as Jesus' ministry. He stops by maybe once later, but they reject him. And so what happens in verse 31, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the, notice, Sabbaths, many, many Sabbaths. Jairus heard these things. Okay, Luke 7. This is the last other reference we'll look at. Just the first verse. Months later, probably. Now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. Here we are again in Capernaum. And remember what happens? This fellow has a servant who is uh, on the verge of death again. And this time, the centurion asked Jesus, heal him at a distance. You can heal. You don't have to come to my house. Just do it right here. Are you with me? This is in Capernaum again. Jairus knows about this. Twice in Capernaum, Jesus has healed without going to the house. At least, by the way. As John said, this is just a few of the things that Jesus did. If all the things were written down, the world couldn't hold the books. So there may have been more. Do you you understand where we're going here? Jairus waited, first of all, until his daughter was near death. In fact, she was so near death that she dies within minutes of his arrival at Jesus. She, it's highly unlikely that she got sick the day before. You understand? And she's dying now. She's probably been sick for weeks, if not longer. Jesus has been in Capernaum. The ministry we've seen during the last several chapters have been at Capernaum. Jairus did not go to seek Jesus. And when he did, think about it now. Your daughter is, at, is dying. You know that. There is a man who you know can heal her by simply speaking the word where he is. 
I don't know about you, but I'd feel a little desperate, you know? And I'd say, which one of my servants? Go to Jesus, say, my daughter is dying, and plead with him to heal her. Or go yourself, whatever. He didn't do that. At the last possible moment, he went, and what did he ask? Jesus, you got to come to my house and heal my daughter. And he left her there because, look, I'm not criticizing the guy, but his faith just wasn't strong enough to still believe, even though he'd already demonstrated at least twice, that Jesus could heal her instantaneously from where he stood. You, you, you getting it here? So that's the full picture of Jairus. It's wonderful that he did drop down at Jesus' feet and he did beg him, but he's really in a point of desperation now. He swallowed his pride. By the way, um, <clears throat> word has certainly made it around the synagogues by now that Jesus is a blasphemer because we've had the episode of the man with a withered hand in a synagogue. It may have been C Capernaum. We don't know. Remember where he said, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, you know, to kill or to heal and so on. And he was angry with the leaders because they wouldn't answer him. So Jesus is got a reputation by now as a blasphemer because he heals on the Sabbath. I don't know where Jairus stood on this whole issue, but he knows that um, it wouldn't be a good thing for him to send for Jesus to, to do a healing. He's not a popular figure among the leadership. Okay. So that probably entered into his, his thinking. The point is, you see, Jesus is going to work in his life, and I do not believe it was an accident that Jairus had to wait. You know, there are a lot of scriptures that say, wait on the Lord. Do you know that? Lots of them. Jeremiah, wait on the Lord. And again, I say, wait. But too often, there's no scriptural command for this, but we make God wait on us. Don't we? You know, God, God will be speaking to us so plainly about something. And we know it. And we'll say, uh, not right now, Lord. I think I'll wait on that one. I'm not ready. Right? And we wait and we wait and we make him wait and wait. And by the way, if he's putting something, his finger on something in our lives... He's not going to go away. Okay? We'd like him to change the subject sometimes. But he's not going to do that. And often, I've seen this in my own life, by the way. I'll be the first to confess it. Sometimes he'll make me wait <laughs> on him. And that's good, by the way. I need that. You know, what's, what's the phrase that's been so popular? I want it when? Now. now. That's right. And we pull that with God all the time. Praise God, he doesn't give into that kind of stuff. So I really believe that God is at work in this man's life. This isn't just an accident that this woman happened to come up and delay the entourage and that it was like the worst day possible to try to walk down the street. Okay. There's a whole nother sermon here, but listen. God is at work in every life, 24 hours a day. Do you realize that? By the way, if you ever get the idea, you know, man, I wish I was in control. <laughs> I'm glad you're not. 
just think about all the interweavings of all the lives that are touched by circumstances and events and decisions people make and things they see and say and things they do. And God is is overseeing all of that just in this assembly, in your families, in your neighborhoods. And by the way, let me stress, you're not robots. Nobody's robots. This is wonderful how God uh, does this. He's, he doesn't have to be the author of evil. He can't. He can't be tempted by sin. says that in James. Okay. You say, well, how's come there's evil? Well, it comes from us. He doesn't need to create evil. We supply plenty for him. No, I'm serious. Okay. And so the only relationship God has with evil, he will permit sometimes evil things to happen. By the way, he doesn't permit all the evil to happen that that could. Do you realize that? We learn that from Second Thessalonians, learning about the restrainer who holds back evil. So God, boy, I'm glad he's in control. Because he is he knows everything. <clears throat> he's infinitely wise. And he has an end that he's going to achieve. And therefore knows when to hold back evil. What exactly to permit, what to stop. And in the midst of all of it, we have a perfectly free will. Okay? So don't be sitting there saying, well, I can't help it, you know. I don't have a free will. No, that's not true. And he has all power. And praise God, he's infinite goodness as well. Okay? And now, he's got an end he's aiming at. Let me tell you what it is. It's that wonderful song that Handel put to music. The kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Now, that's the end God is directing all of history toward. And if you're not on that bandwagon, you better get there because that's where it's going. And nothing in heaven or earth, is going to stop God from getting there. Now, he's interweaving history and using our bad choices and our good ones, and including the crucifixion of his son, to get there. Isn't that wonderful? You can't... You know, we talk about the end-body problem in physics. Uh, it's, it's tough just to work out three interacting bodies in gravitation. Try a thousand. You can't... Even a computer takes a long time. Uh, We're talking about living beings interacting with each other. And God is going to achieve his end. But then in the midst of it, he's working in individual lives. I can tell you with confidence, right now, God is at work in your life. Now, it's up to you how successful that is. But he's going to use you either way, whether you cooperate or not. Okay? And so... If we stand back with that kind of long-range view at what's going on here, listen, Jesus is well aware, even if the girl dies, that's no big deal. In fact, later, uh, when he encourages Jairus and he says, just have faith and she will be made well, the words he uses to describe what's going to happen to her are the same words that he uses to apply to the woman when she was healed of her infirmity. In other words, death, you know, flow of blood, a cold, whatever. It's all the same to him. Do you understand? She's dead. Okay, fine. We'll raise her from the dead. No, I'm serious. 
Nothing is impossible for God. You understand? And, and we're, in our, in, we're in our little lives, and I'm including mine in this, and we come across these problems and go, oh, no. Where is this going to go? You know, how is God going to get out of this one? Right? And we need to stand back and put our hand in the hand that's controlling the universe, okay? Listen, it's going according to plan, trust me. And when it comes to my life and when it comes to your life, everything is exactly perfect. You could not improve on the way things are going. And and by the way, you have a great advantage, obviously. If you know Jesus Christ, listen to this. All things work together. Do you understand what he's saying there? All things, this incredibly complicated fabric of interwoven interactions and events and circumstances and ups and downs and your bad decisions and good decisions, all of that because of the hand of God and his love for you, work together for what? Good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Isn't it great to be part of that? If you don't know Jesus Christ, don't you feel kind of left out? No, I'm serious. Man, I would. It's wonderful to be part of that now. And that's what's going on here. You're seeing it with God in the flesh now, doing what he does every day with you. Working with these two people. Moment by moment. And uh, leading them through a hands-on life seminar for free. Okay. So that's the that's the story behind Jairus. Uh, on the outside, it looks like this guy's really humble and repentant, but really he's holding back. He's been waiting. He's been putting God off. By the way, he hasn't he hasn't come to Christ. He's not a follower of Christ. Think of all he's heard and seen. We're going to see this later. Jesus is going to reserve the greatest condemnation for the city of Capernaum. Because of all that they knew and they did nothing about it. And Jairus is in that batch. Okay. All right. So um, he comes, he pleads, and Jesus, out of his grace, uh, you know, from other accounts, he starts to go with him. And uh, back to Luke chapter 8, because uh, there's uh, a wonderful little word here describing the crowd. It says, verse 42 He had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying, but, big word, but as he went, the multitudes thronged him. The word there, translated thronged, is literally choked or drowned. (laughs) So you getting the picture? This is like when they uh, sell the iPads for the first day at the Apple store. (laughs) But worse. Okay, you ever been in a crowd like that? You know, like some of these soccer games in Europe, you know, where you you literally you cannot move. It's so crowded. That's the idea. Now, think of poor Jairus. I, I don't know if you can relate to him. I can. Mike was, I think he was 11 years old, my son. And uh, it was a Sunday morning. We were uh, driving in two separate cars. Carlene had already come with uh, 
with Dave. And um, I was left behind with Mike. He had had a few episodes of seizures, epileptic seizures, before then. He, we'd been going to a neurologist, but we just had to keep an eye on him because you never knew, you know, when a seizure was going to hit. And she had just gone, and I called Mike to go, and I'll never forget it. I, I didn't get an answer. And I went in the living room, and there he was. He was in the middle of a seizure, a grand mall. And I couldn't put him in the car to take him to emergency. <laughs> I couldn't even move him. So um, I was, I, I t- you talk about a feeling of helplessness. And I immediately, you know, I cried out to God. You know, I said, God, don't let him die, please. I didn't know what to do. We, this was before the era of cell phones, okay? And so it was a Sunday morning. I went over to my wonderful neighbor, Bob. He was watching a 49er game. He's a big 49er fan. And I pounded on his door. I didn't want to leave Mike, but I had to. And uh, Bob didn't want to be interrupted. And I was yelling through the window. I said, Bob, you've got to help me, please. And he said, can it wait? You know, this is a good game and so on. I, had to, I was going to beat the door down and drag him out if I had to. And he's twice as big as I am. But dear Bob, he, he, under, he, he caught the urgency of the situation. And he came out and I said, you've got to drive us to the uh, hospital right now. And uh, I went back. I'll never forget it. I managed to pick up Mike and hold him like this. I had to hold him upright because uh, his uh, airways would get clogged with saliva if I didn't. And he was still in a seizure. It just it didn't stop. I found out later he was in a state it's called status epilepticus. It's a seizure that doesn't stop. It's very dangerous. And uh, so I'm sitting on the passenger side holding Mike like this and praying that all the stoplights will be green, which they weren't. And uh, we got there. And then um, I couldn't convince the guy in the ER that he wasn't on drugs. He was convinced that he'd done something with drugs. I said, no, he has a known condition. We couldn't get hold of the doctor, the neurologist. It was a Sunday. And so uh, they took him in, and I found out that they really they treated him for having drugs. They were pumping him full of Valium. And uh, it just got worse and worse. In fact, they got to a point to where they brought in one of these, you know, local neighborhood well-meaning people, you know, that are supposed to be there to counsel you in case of really serious stuff like this. You know, well, I comforted him because I was a believer, you know. I said, I know Jesus, you know. I'm not worried about that. But uh, I'm not sure about my son's spiritual condition. You know, that's my concern. And um, anyway, I, listen, I waited. It, it was several hours. It was like three hours of just intense, is my son going to die? And there's nothing I can do about it. Praise God, he arranged finally for them to get a hold of the the uh, neurologist and uh they gave him the right treatment, and he recovered. And he eventually, in fact, grew out of the, the epilepsy. That's, that's a long way of saying I know how he felt it, to some extent. Jairus. So helpless. And uh, anxious, you know. Yes, I knew Jesus Christ, 
but I wasn't sure about my son. And even if he'd been a Christian, I still would have been anxious. I love my son, you know. And yet I learned many lessons from that experience, and Mike did too, among them getting saved. (laughs) Praise God, you see. God wove that circumstance. He permitted that. Do you understand? I suffered tremendously. Mike suffered uh, tremendously. It wasn't for months until he could add two and two. He had so much Valium in him. But look, he knows Jesus Christ today. God worked to that circumstance to teach me patience a little bit further down the road. Okay, I'm not, I haven't arrived. Okay, but to trust him just a little bit more that he is in absolute control and he will not permit things to go beyond what I am able to bear or anybody else. Do you understand? You can go to the bank on that one. First Corinthians 10. No temptation has taken you. But such as his common demand, everybody has them. But God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tested or tempted above what you are able to handle. Okay, Jairus is going to have to learn some of these lessons. I can relate. And we'd like to, wouldn't it be wonderful if the school of life never had any bad stuff in it? You know, but listen, think about it. How are you going to learn patience unless there's something that I have to endure that's not pleasant? (laughs) That's the very definition of the word. There's no other way around it. And so that's where Jairus is. All right. So the multitude is choking, literally drowning Jesus and the others. As you can imagine, Jairus saying, can't we move a little faster? You know? Can't we leave this crowd behind? And then, if that's not bad enough, this woman messes things up from Jairus' point of view, by the way. Not from God's point of view. It's a wonderful thing. Here she is. Now, I want you to picture what life is like for this woman. Verse 43, now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. Number one, she's got a flow of blood. You know, if you have a flow of blood, you tend to be kind of weak. Isn't that right, Michael? Yes. You're losing iron. And you're losing the very liquid supply to your life system. You're weak. She's been that way for 12 years. Can you imagine that? Number two, according to Leviticus chapter 15, she's unclean. She's in the same category as a leper. Did you know that? If she touches, if she sits on a chair, touches clothing, lays on a bed, touches a person, they all become unclean. And there is this ritual that they must go through to be cleansed. And it takes days. I wonder how many times she's gone through that and her friends and her relatives over the years. Twelve years. Twelve years of that. The physicians. It's, uh, it, Luke is the author of this book. Of course, God is the ultimate author. Luke's a physician. <laughs> I wonder what he thought as he penned those words, you know? You know, all those charlatans out there. He knows it. It says, 
that she had spent all her livelihood. I mean, she had no money left. Okay, that's that's what it's saying. Maybe enough to put a little bit of bread on the table, but that's it. She's broke. Think of the number of times she had her hopes built up. This time it's going to work. And boy, I'll tell you, the physician would really lay it on. You know, honey, I know you've had trouble before. I got the solution right here. It just costs you about 100 denarii, and you're going to walk out of here a whole woman. She gets all her hopes up and, and excited, and nothing happens, except she just lost another 100 denarii over and over and over again until she's, she's flat broke. You'd think she'd learn by now, but, you know, hope springs eternal. You know, some guy comes along. I heard you got this problem. I know the other guys have failed. I got, I got it right here in this little bag. Uh, and finally, just uh, stre- to stress it all, 12 years. It's interesting. There's no magical connection here, but it's interesting that that's how old Jairus' daughter is. So for the whole life of Jairus' daughter, this poor woman has been suffering through this. So she's an outcast in, in a certain sense of the word because she can't touch anybody and they can't touch anything she's touched. It's a pitiable picture. And so it says, very interesting, she touched him from behind. I wonder how many times she might have tried before this because she's so weak. You know, I think it's because the crowd was going so slow. This is probably her first opportunity. I could just see her other times before, you know, when it was not so crowded and Jesus would be accessible. But she'd have to go up in, in the open where everybody would see her and, you know, touch his robe. She doesn't want to do it. You can tell from the passage. She's a very shy woman. Okay? Very fearful. It says later when she comes up, she's trembling. She's so afraid. How many times did she miss her chance? And now uh, there are so many people touching Jesus. You know, nobody's going to see me. And she creeps down. Maybe she waits by the side as Jesus goes by and he goes by. She just touches the edge of his garment. And it says, immediately the flow of blood stopped. And she would know it. What a feeling. What a sensation, huh? After 12 years, I tell you, she knew and she was so happy. And no doubt she was probably just getting ready to creep away and go back to her house. You know, nobody knew. (laughs) But that's not good. You you may sit there and you say, why did Jesus, why was Jesus so hard on her? Poor girl, you know, leave her alone. There are two big reasons why. The first one, uh, it says in the other gospel, she said to herself, if I can only touch his garment, I'll be healed. Now, imagine if, it happened the way she'd planned, and she goes home, and she starts telling her friends, yeah, there's something about the robe that Jesus is wearing. I just touched it, and I got healed. Is that good? Just, just touch his robe. There's something magical about it. There's power in that, in that robe. Huh? No! Notice, by the way, Jesus, did you notice what Jesus said? He says, who touched what? Me. Me. Isn't that interesting? 
for I felt power go out from my robe. Is that what he says? From where? From me. That's correct. It's Jesus that heals. It's Jesus that saves. Not being around Christians, not going to church, not giving money to the church. Have you ever touched Jesus? I mean, in the way this woman did. Listen, I can't count the number of people I've seen coming through these doors and the other doors that we've been in as a church who have been like the multitude, maybe brushed up against Jesus, but they haven't really touched him by faith. Reached out and said, Lord Jesus, save me. One-on-one, me and Jesus. Because that's what it takes. It's a personal thing, you see. And it's very important that she understands that, that she doesn't go back and say, yeah, that robe of Jesus has got a lot of power in it. But secondly, it's very important that in spite of her, this dear woman's fear and trembling, it's very important she start off on the right foot right now by testifying publicly what Jesus has done for her. Amen? Yeah. That's so important. And bless her heart, uh, it says she came. When Jesus called her, she came trembling. You can just, I'm literally shaking, you know? She's so afraid. But uh, her desire to please the Lord was greater than her fear of man. You know, we don't, we don't uh, make big appeals here and pressure people to come forward. And I'm not going to do that, so relax. Okay. But I'll tell you, I, I love it when somebody gets to the point when God is speaking to them that they say, I don't care what other people think, man. I'm going to go do business with God right now. Maybe it goes back to when I got saved. Uh, I got saved in a, in a living room in a friend's house. And I'd never prayed in my life. And there I am on the floor on my knees, praying with my wife shocked in the other room, staring at me. She wasn't saved at the time. And uh, my friend who led me to the Lord said, hey, would you mind coming to our church uh, in two weeks and, and giving your testimony? Come forward. You know, they had an invitation at his particular church. I said, yeah, I'd love to. I never would have done that before that, man. But... Uh, You see, it's a good sign when someone uh, gets to the point to where the opinion of God matters so much. They don't care about the opinion of man anymore. Man, that's good. And that's where she was. And uh, the next person that I saw go through that experience was my wife, because two weeks later, uh, as they had the closing hymn, I started going up the, the aisle, up the middle to tell people what had happened. And I turned around. And here comes my wife walking up the, the aisle, every eye on her. She wouldn't have done that, except she touched Jesus, you see. And Jesus called her out. I checked with, uh, I'm not going to name her name, but there's a woman with us this morning, not as young as she used to be. But she was a young woman, single at the time. And I remember uh, it was uh, the Fargo school we were at. And... Um, We've been praying for her for years as a little girl and then as a young woman. And um, I'll never forget, uh, at the end of the message, she comes forward with tears in her eyes. And it was her line was, I think it's about time, don't you? Isn't that cool? 
And she did, she never would have done that. But by then, she knew God was speaking to her, and she didn't care what other people thought about her coming up and talking to the preacher. Oh, man, don't do that. Woo! She didn't care. She wanted to do business with God right there and then, and she got saved. Now, she got saved before she came up, okay? You don't get saved when preachers lead you in prayer. Now, it might happen once in a blue moon. You get saved when you believe the gospel, okay? Listen, God is attending every little heart. And when he sees that bang, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise right now. The moment you believe. And that's when she got saved. Um, a few weeks ago, right there, second or third row, there was a young girl sitting there after the meeting. Most beautiful sight I've ever seen. I was sitting over there praying for her. Tears running down her cheeks. God spoke to her. And she didn't care what other people thought. She only cared what Jesus thought, you see. I love it. And my daughter, who's another one of these, by the way, it was after a meeting when she was 12. She looked up at me and said, Daddy, I need to get saved right now. It's wonderful. And like I said, relax. I'm not going to pressure anybody. I can't do it. But I'll tell you, when God does it, it's a miracle and it's, it's wonderful to behold. And that's what happened with this woman. She came forward trembling and, and uh, fearful. And, it's, and God uh, lays it out. He says um, that uh, she declared to him in the presence of all the people. Notice how God says this, telling us how bold she was. The reason she had touched him. And how she was healed immediately. Full testimony. There's a um, wonderful thing God does for people who just got saved. It's called baptism. And it's kind of like when you get a a program and you put it on your computer. You're saying, what? I'll explain it. Particularly where I work, we get fairly complex programs. We put them on our computers. We want to make sure they work. And so when you get a... Uh, a big package of software, they will include with it a, a demo. In other words, something to run this program on to make sure that it works. You got, you understand me? Okay. That's kind of like baptism. When you get saved, it's God's uh, first chance for you to step out and test <laughs> your new life. Let's see if it's real. You know, you saved. All right. Stand up there and tell everybody exactly how it happened. Isn't it wonderful, by the way? If you've been to a baptism and you heard testimonies, you know what I'm talking about. It's like uh, when the uh, little deer is born and takes her first steps, you know, kind of wobbly. Okay, well, the final thing, by the way, that's that's two things that Jesus accomplished with what he did here. The third thing was he then gave her personal assurance publicly. Verse 48, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What precious words those must have been to her. huh? And and if nothing else, you know, your faith has made you well. You're, you're whole now. You're fixed. You're fine. 
It's interesting, by the way, that in verse 49, it says, while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. It's interesting because it's the same word in both verses, daughter. You say, what's unusual about that? This is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus calls a woman daughter. He always says woman. He used the word daughter here, interestingly enough. And in fact, it's such, uh, uh, it's so ironic. He's saying to this woman what Jairus wanted his daughter to hear. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And instead, while Jesus is saying those very words to this woman, and I have a feeling, by the way, that Jairus saw this guy before he even got there. He'd know him, you know, and he'd be all by himself coming up the road. He'd know who it was, and he'd suspect why he's coming, and as he got near and saw his face, he'd know why he's coming. And you can just see Jairus' heart just sink as this guy comes up the road with the bad news. And instead of, uh, your daughter has been made well, which he wanted to hear, your daughter is dead. Rock bottom. Well, humanly speaking, this is, this is a developing tragedy. Listen, God's in control, and he's using this. Sometimes, and I'm speaking from personal experience, we need to be brought to rock bottom before we can go back up again. That is, come to God. That was the case with me. Interesting what they said. They said, uh, don't trouble the master anymore. In other words, there's nothing he can do now. You know, it's too late. Let's all go home. Uh, So Jesus, by the way, uh, already begins to minister to him. I don't know. We, We really don't know how Jairus is responding in all of this. He's not a man of many words. But Jesus certainly, on his part, tries to encourage him. He says, don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. One of the things Jesus is working on here, by the way, in Jairus is his faith, right? Jairus, before this, maybe believed that if Jesus came to his house physically and did something physically to his daughter, she might be healed from whatever sickness she had. Now, God is asking him to believe that his daughter being dead, Jesus can do something about that. Does that take a little bit more faith, do you think? He's learning something here. You see, it's not that we can trust God this far, but, you know, beyond that, forget it, okay? (laughs) You trust him for everything. He goes, the mourners are making a big commotion. He puts them out for two reasons. Perfectly understandable. Number one, what a distraction. It's quite noisy. In fact, they had um, what were called uh, morning horns that they would blow. They're not as bad as the ones you hear at the giant games, but nevertheless, they were horns that they blew in the midst of this mourning ceremony. And not only that, they're mocking Jesus says she sleeps, and they say, oh, you're you're crazy. She's dead. What's wrong with you? But not only are they a distraction, they're unnecessary. You don't need mourners at a resurrection. 
You need people to celebrate. And notice, by the way, how Jesus does it. A wonderful touch here. He doesn't always do this, but he took her by the hand. Isn't that great? Luke, by the way, is uh, the book of the perfect humanity of Jesus. We talked about the different Gospels. And it, there is so much of Jesus touching people. And here's an example of that. He takes her by the hand. And if you think about it, this is really crazy. He talks to her. She's dead. But he talks to her. In fact, he tells her to do something. This is God in the flesh, you see. <laughs> you do that, they'd lock you up. Jesus tells this dead girl, little girl, arise. And when he speaks that, she cannot but come back to life. And it says in the other gospel, she got up and walked around. Isn't that good? You know, Lazarus, come forth. This guy's in the tomb, wrapped up like a mummy. And you can imagine him shuffling out, you know. But he can't help it because God commanded him to come out, come back from the dead. He can't refuse. That's who we're dealing with here. And it says, by the way, some people say, oh, well, you know, she really wasn't dead. After all, Jesus said she was asleep. We said that about Lazarus, too. And Lazarus was certainly dead. But it says her spirit returned to her. That's the definition of death, separation of spirit from body. She was dead, okay? Not anymore. And uh, and then I, I love this little touch. He commanded she be given something to eat. Isn't that good? You know, just that little extra, kind of like a doctor's final thing, you know, after he's taken care of you now, make sure, you know, you take these twice a day or something like that. But she doesn't need any medicine. She's not sick anymore. She's not only raised from the dead, her illness is gone. And it says her parents were astonished. No kidding. <laughs> I, the, the Bible is the, the best book in the world for understatement, by the way. And we don't know, you know, how much of the lesson Jairus or his wife learned here. But the Lord was certainly trying to teach them, wasn't he? Now, uh, I got real quick here. I want to end with a, uh, I've been talking to the believers here mostly this morning, but I want to talk to you if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about ergonomics at the beginning. And uh, there's a lesson to learn from Jairus's life. And in fact, the whole city of Capernaum. Look here at chapter 10, and we'll just read one verse. Turn to the right, just uh, two chapters. I mentioned this earlier. Verse 15. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. Can you imagine that? Where all Jesus did all these miracles, many of which we haven't even read. They had heard and seen so much, and yet they did not respond. What does he say? Um Look at verse 13. What do you, uh, Chorazin, what do you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Zidon, they would have repented long ago. That's what Jesus was after. You see? Not to show them miracles, but for them to turn from their sin and turn to him. 
And after all the city had seen. And by the way, that answers the question. I know many of you read this and you say, wait a minute. Why does Jesus say here, um, don't tell anybody? He told the guy uh, over in the land of the Gadarenes to go out and tell everybody what had happened. He's contradicting himself. No, he's not. The Gadarenes, he'd never been there. They had no testimony for Jesus whatsoever. Now they have one. And I have a feeling they have a lot more in a couple, couple of days. Okay? Legion was Jesus' evangelist in the land of the Gadarenes. Capernaum had heard it and seen it over and over and over again. And now we have another resurrection. And Jesus said, no, they're glutted with miracles. They have more than enough evidence. It's time for them to act on what they already know right now. And they didn't. And he ends up saying this in chapter 10. Okay, that's it. Judgment's coming. You've heard it and said it all. By the way, Capernaum today, uh, you, you wouldn't know it was there. It's not a city. It's a barren place on the shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee. When I say barren, I mean they do have some holes because they've dug and actually uncovered the uh, floor of the synagogue. But it's dead. It's not occupied. It's barren, just like Jesus said it would be. So if you're like Jairus and the other people of Capernaum who have heard it and you've seen it, but you still keep Jesus waiting. I don't know why, but you're just you're saying, wait, Jesus, wait a little longer. Maybe there's something I want to do or I'm not ready. Let me tell you something from my personal experience here. I've known a lot of people. Now, I'm 65. And I've known a lot of people who've uh, done that with God. I can't think of one who, when they got to the end of their life, you know, like on their deathbed, and they said, I'm ready now, Jesus, save me. Now, I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm sure they do. But I'll tell you, I know lots of people who kept waiting and kept waiting and putting God off and putting God off. And maybe in their heart they thought they're ready. I don't know. I don't know what happened, but they didn't repent. They never repented. And they died Christless. Don't be like that. Okay? Don't be like Esau. You know what it says about him? He got to the point, it says, he sought repentance. What does it mean? He's looking for it. I, I want to repent. But he couldn't find it, even though he sought it with tears. He, he cried real tears. All right, here's your quick lesson in one minute on spiritual ergonomics. If you're in that boat, it's time to act, to do something about it. Here's, this is, we'll call this um, salvation ergonomics, okay? I'm going to use the chair here. When they do ergonomics in an office, I've had this because they've come to my office before. And one of the first things they do is they teach you how to sit. Okay, I'm not going to go through all of that. But um, Jesus is offering you salvation right now if you don't know him. He's been offering it, maybe for some time, and you haven't done anything about it. The way you do something about it is this. Think of that chair as the offer Jesus is making. For eternal life. Now you can stand here and you can look at it. And you can know that Jesus will save you. But until you actually sit down. And put your full weight on him. It's not going to do you any good. 
But when you sit down and put your full weight on Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I have nothing to offer God. I trust you completely for the salvation of my soul. Then you're saved. And now there are ways on not how not to do it here, just like in ergonomics. All right. For example, you can't do this. You know, well, I got Jesus and I got this also. I'm I'm a pretty good person. You know, I'm relying on both. All right. That's that leads to not physical damage, spiritual damage. Or uh, you could do this, you know. No, that's no good. The way you trust Jesus, if I can do it, is like this. This is terrible posture. But it's great salvation ergonomics. You understand? If this is Jesus and his offer, this is what you got to do. You put your full weight on him and nothing else. Okay? And you do that and he'll save you. All right. Close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're concerned about our lives, about our eternal lives. And we do pray for the believers here and myself as well, Lord, that we might learn to trust you more day by day. Lord, help us to grow in our faith and to really just trust you for everything. And Lord, I do pray for anyone here who doesn't know you that they might stop putting you off, stop making you wait and come and put their full weight and trust on the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else for the salvation of their souls. Lord, we know they'll be in good hands then. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.